This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, using an army of genetically modified animals to create personalised cancer treatment. It's scientifically intriguing but ethically challenging. The second in our two-part series on the fusion of animals and humans in modern medicine and your snake bite questions answered. Can't wait. And as of today, you can walk into a supermarket or pharmacy in most jurisdictions in Australia and buy a home kit to test whether you're infectious with the COVID-19 virus. These rapid antigen tests aren't quite as sensitive as the so-called gold standard PCR tests that so many of us have blinked back tears from by now. But they have the advantage of being much faster at delivering a result. It's a way of screening for infection as we start living with the virus. Someone who's probably got the most experience of rapid antigen testing in Australia is Dr Ian Norton, an emergency physician and managing director of Respond Global, which is an organisation that helps to manage health emergencies. Tegan and I spoke to Ian yesterday. Thanks for coming on. One of the reasons is that you were probably one of the first people to use rapid antigen testing en masse in Australia. Tell us about your experience to date. Yeah, the first experience was in July, August last year when we started actually supporting a large cruise and tourism company up in Europe who was interested in putting antigen testing into place. And I was very keen on looking at the science and the evidence for it at the time. We did a lot of research for that offshore. And then we were asked by the trauma centre, the National Trauma Centre up in Darwin, which was hosting Howard Springs, the quarantine centre there in the very early days, to look at better ways to keep their staff safe. So what ways could we test particularly daily testing, because the staff of the quarantine centre were really worried they were going to take coronavirus back home to their families or introduce it to the community up in Darwin. And of course, we were worried about the vulnerable in the community up there, Indigenous health and other other issues. And there's a lack of capacity in, in the one single hospital in Darwin and things. And we were successfully doing that seven days a week for many, many months, about 30,000 tests done. Can you rattle us through what the pros and cons are of PCR versus rapid antigen tests then? Well, PCR certainly, as it's talked about a lot, uh, the gold standard. So it's certainly the test that uh, gives us most sensitivity. It can pick up even the smallest amount of a broken up virus. And it's done in a lab setting. So it looks at the nucleic acids that are broken down from viruses and, and has to be done in a lab setting, as we all know. It takes between 90 minutes to six hours usually to run a cycle. But in common day-to-day use here in Australia, we can wait for 24 to, to 72 hours, depending on the demand. But it, it is the most sensitive test. Whereas antigen testing is done, as we call it, at point of care or, or where we're interacting with that patient or that person we're screening. And it's a very simple test to use. It looks a lot like a pregnancy test. It takes a couple of little steps where we mix it uh, with some fluid, but the the participant can do that themselves, put it on a little strip, and it gives us a result in between 10 and 15 minutes. So a totally different form of testing. And what it's looking for is the protein that's around the virus, so a whole virus. In fact, it's probably the best test of all to check whether you have active whole viruses that can infect other people. So it's very, very good at checking for infectivity. It makes sense that you could use them in a situation where people are at high risk of catching COVID, like someone who works in a quarantine facility. What's the purpose of having them available over the counter for home use? Well, we should look at the UK, Europe and the US for that question. That's really, I suppose, the very overused term of, of living with COVID. It's become part of normal life and a bit like, I suppose, having the flu or, or something else. You have access now to a test, a cheap test that can be bought over the counter in a, in a chemist. A pharmacy. People are using it to test 
themselves so they don't put others in danger. Let's say they have vulnerable older parents or people at work that uh, they want to stay out of work if they have any chance that they have symptoms consistent with COVID. So therefore, they use these tests for those purposes. I think that's where the government want us to go by this release. But for me, it's missing one or two steps in between that. So we're still now only really rolling this out on a mass scale in businesses and places like Meatworks and supermarket distribution centres and all sorts of other important places, which we all rely on. High-risk settings. Yes, but also part of our fabric of life. We need to make sure that all those things continue so we can, we can continue to live. But at a home level, I'm not sure we fully talked through what we're going to use it for here in Australia. So just give us an example, because I think you're working with a a meatworks in Melbourne at the moment. Yes, several meatworks around the place. This is country Victoria, and and there's certainly an example of an outbreak that occurred during the week. PCR was brought in, obviously, when we had the first case. But to give you a practical example of of how the challenge of having a result only the day or, or even two days later, we instituted rapid antigen testing, and that picked up about six people on the day of that testing, and they were sent off for PCR tests, which were confirmed, whereas... If they had waited for the PCR, they would have allowed those six people into the factory and then had further spread. That's a real issue. We actually have seven times prevented outbreaks in the aged care sector in Sydney during the the recent outbreaks there as well. So documented screening has stopped an outbreak within an aged care facility, which is really important. And what about international travel? Can it be used there more judiciously? It's already massively used. You, You fly into Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris or many, many other airports in Europe, for example, and you will be wrapped out of antigen tests at the arrivals hall. And you would have had that done for the last 12 months or more. So if you're talking to just a punter in the general public today about why these things are suddenly on supermarket shelves and in pharmacies, what would you say to them to sort of what to expect next with these rapid antigen tests? First of all, there are 25 to 30 of them on the market and not all of them perform in the same way. But I suppose that's the same for several tests out there. That's a tough one for me. I'm not sure how we're going to manage the quality because in independent testing in several states, particularly New South Wales, Victoria and WA, they've looked at these tests and, and some five or six were in the very, very high sensitivity bracket and very useful. Others really perform quite poorly, but all of them are TGA approved. And so if those ones are going to go out onto the shelves, then I have a worry that not all of the cases will be picked up, whereas I have more confidence in a couple of brands. And then on picking it up, you should expect inside the packaging that there are clear pictorials to tell you how to do it. There are some helplines and videos and things you can watch from that company to instruct you even further if you need that. And then to say to you, that please, please, please make sure that if you do this test at home uh, and you're doing it for the right reasons, as in you've got some symptoms, you want to check that it's not COVID or you're going to somewhere risky, you're going to meet a vulnerable loved one or whatever it's going to be, or going to a workplace, that you have a system to go and get a PCR diagnosis test or diagnostic test if you were to ever go positive on this particular test, because it's not perfect, but it is a great added tool. And it does give you more surety if it's... um, if it's negative and if it's positive, then you've got a 99% plus chance that it, that it really is positive. And just finally, beware of just the single test. If you're, say, visiting an elderly relative on a, on a regular basis, you've really got to do it two or three times a week to be sure. Yes, absolutely. And that, that's same same for anybody who's thinking about putting this in place for maybe they, they own a small cafe and they've got a few staff. And should you, you organise this for your staff, for example? Yeah, look at it at least twice a week. Ian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Dagan. Thanks, Norman. Thanks. Dr Ian Norton, who's Managed Director at Respond Global. You can find a longer version of that interview on Coronacast via the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
When someone is diagnosed with cancer, often, their doctor often has to take a punt on which chemotherapy drug might be most effective. With common cancers, clinical trials have made it pretty clear which work best. But even the best drug overall won't be the best for everyone. With rarer cancers, sometimes there aren't clinical trials to draw on. So research teams around the world have been creating armies of animal proxies to help guide cancer patients' treatment. This is the second of two features from ABC science journalist Carl Smith about how animals and humans are being fused in modern medicine. In 2016, a 49-year-old woman presented at the Cleveland Clinic in the US state of Ohio with severe pain in her abdomen. It was found to have a large lesion in her liver. It was thought to be a tumour of endometrial origin. When doctors found her tumour, they realised it was rare and aggressive and likely to spread. The standard of care would have been a surgery followed by chemotherapy. This is Mohamed Abazid, an associate professor at Northwestern University in the US. He soon joined the patient's treating team to try to figure out which chemotherapy drug was most likely to help the woman. Now this particular subtype of endometrial cancer called clear cell carcinoma are quite rare. There are only hundreds of cases per year in the US and so randomized controlled trials have not been completed. So picking the right chemotherapy was a bit of a shot in the dark. The standard of care was really extrapolated from other endometrial cancers and the outcomes were so poor that there was suspicion or question regarding the efficacy of that chemotherapy. The patient had extensive surgery to remove the cancer, but scans showed it had spread. She had weeks of recovery ahead before chemotherapy could begin. So Muhammad and his team decided to use this time to try a radical new way of figuring out which treatment might be best for her. His goal was to create an army of animal avatars. They began by taking some of the tumour that was removed from the patient and injecting it into a mouse. That tumour is injected in the flank. If there is a bump in the flank of the mouse, that means the tumour is beginning to grow and is engrafted. This is known as xenografting. In other words, taking foreign cells or tissue from one species and grafting it onto another. It's just one way human and animal tissues are being combined in modern medicine, sometimes controversially, to try to find new ways to save people's lives. The mice Muhammad Abazid uses are genetically modified to allow the foreign human tumour cells to grow. The mouse lacks an immune system, an adaptive immune system, and so the ability to reject the human tumour is significantly diminished because they're immunosuppressed. Muhammad and his team grafted the patient's tumour onto a dozen mice. And we were impressed by how quickly the tumour developed. And it occurred to us that this could potentially be an opportunity to test the avatar model. In an ideal world, researchers would have tested various cancer drugs on other people with this patient's type of tumour. But for rare cancers, it's much harder to find enough patients for trials. Plus, each individual's cancer might respond differently to drugs anyway. The avatar model is a form of personalised medicine designed to test various chemotherapies on an individual's cancer after it's been grafted onto a bunch of mice. It's better known as a patient-derived xenograft, or PDX, model. 
we decided to conduct a, essentially a clinical trial in the mouse cohort. There was an exchange with the clinical team regarding what potential therapies they would consider. And so that really guided our mouse clinical trial. And so we decided on a few agents that her physician said may be under consideration. The patient needed about four to six weeks to recover from her surgery before her doctors would start chemotherapy. So Muhammad's team knew how long they'd have to test the drugs on their PDX mice. We tested three distinct compounds initially, one of which would have been the backbone of the standard of care. This drug is called cisplatinum. And it turns out that the mouse did not care that it was receiving that drug. So the patient's tumour in the mouse avatars was resistant to this drug. But it did respond to the other drugs that were tested, called neratinib and gemcitabine. The other genotoxic gemcitabine had a substantial response, and the neratinib had also a moderate to significant response. This avatar trial took five weeks. So just as the patient's doctors were getting ready to begin her chemotherapy, Muhammad handed them his results. They decided to give the patient gemcitabine, the clear winner from the PDX trial, and not the traditional standard of care drug. But Muhammad's job wasn't done yet. We wanted to assess how well does this model perform if it is being treated in parallel fashion with the human, and can it predict not only initial responses, but potentially resistance to that initial response and then ultimately secondary responses. Cancers change and mutate over time. Sometimes they develop resistance to first-line therapies. So when we took the gemcitabine-treated mouse and continued to give it gemcitabine over time as the patient had received that therapy over time, we saw that one of the mice had developed resistance to that drug. So this suggested to us that this tumor in some parallel universe was likely to eventually develop resistance to this drug. And in fact, the patient, after several cycles of gemcitabine, had developed resistance and had progression on her imaging scans. We went back to her physicians and said, what additional therapies would you, could you consider? They said the next drugs they'd try were called paslitaxel and neratinib. So Muhammad xenografted the now-resistant tumour onto more mice and began the second stage of his PDX trial. We tested whether the patient's resistant tumour, or rather I should say the mouse-resistant tumour, would respond to paslitaxel. And if there was an additional advantage to adding this experimental drug, neratinib, the mice did respond to paslitaxel. Um, we saw a more significant response with the combination, suggesting that this particular tumor was responsive to those second-line therapies. And so that's ultimately what the patient received. So did all this work, testing drugs on an army of mice with the patient's tumour grafted onto them, actually help her? Right, so it's obviously really difficult to extrapolate from an N of 1 or an anecdote or a case report, which is what this is. The purpose here was really to assess feasibility. Can this be done? So in 2016 was when she was diagnosed. So we're looking at a four-year disease-free survival from the time of diagnosis which is pretty impressive for a rapidly proliferating aggressive tumour. He says this was the first time a patient-derived xenograft model had been used to actually help guide a patient's therapy. There have been other reports prior to this in which retrospectively 
the avatar models were treated after the patient had been treated, but in a prospective fashion, it's our understanding that this is the first time that that's been done. Mohamed Abazid is keen to point out that the mouse avatar trial didn't save the patient's life, but it may have helped guide her doctor's decisions. Even so, it shows the promise of PDX models. They could limit exposure to harmful, ineffective chemotherapies, and they could find better drugs faster. But they're not without their problems, including cost and time. In fact, the idea of using PDX models has been around for a while, but it was quickly swept aside by another option. So we've been xenografting human tumours into mice and other animals for well over five, six decades. However, the cost of working with cell lines grown on plastic really nominated cell line derivatives as the main mode of experimental biology and molecular biology research. But testing chemotherapies on cells grown in a dish hasn't proved very effective at predicting how a patient responds to those drugs. One reason why is that these cultured cells are exposed to a very different environment to what's in a living creature. And this has left room for patient-derived xenograft models to make a comeback. So there's been several reports that span about a decade that have suggested that the correlation is actually quite excellent. We know that's not the case for cell line derivatives. Several studies have now shown mouse PDX models match patient responses to chemotherapies around 80% of the time. According to one researcher I talked to, cells cultured in a dish match up about 25% of the time, at best. Plus, Mohamed Abazid says PDX cancers in mice mimic the patient's cancer by remaining genetically similar and showing similar expression of those genes. So if a correlation coefficient of 1 is perfect, uh, we typically see about 0.98 to 0.99 fidelity when looking at the PDX. However, when we put it on plastic from a gene expression perspective, we drop down to about 0.6, 0.7. But there's a catch to using mouse avatars. Most tumors do not engraft in nine days. We have developed about 400 PDXs since then, and about 4 to 5% of our xenografts will engraft within two weeks. So for the other 95% of cases, the model isn't fast enough to get results to clinicians before a patient's chemotherapy begins. Because of this time issue, it's really more difficult. And also tumours can evolve in the patient and in the mice because it takes a lot of time, so cells adapt. Rita Fior is a developmental biologist and group leader at the Champalimod Foundation in Portugal. She's one of several researchers who are looking beyond mice to see if they can find a better animal avatar model. So, yeah, I'm using fish, zebrafish. The idea in the case of the zebrafish is to do it in a time frame that can be used for, for clinical decisions. She and her team have been grafting human tumours onto zebrafish embryos. This means using a much smaller sample of the patient's tumour. And it means a much faster PDX trial. Two weeks to have the result. So how effective is this model then? We start with colorectal cancer. So what we have at the moment with a cohort of around 40 patients is that we have around 84% of predictive 
rate. So we can predict whether the patient is going to respond or have no response and is going to progress. We also have really great results in breast cancer, in ovarian cancer. So I think it's really promising. And surprisingly, zebrafish not being mammals hasn't been a major hurdle, according to her early results. Biochemically, of course, there are many differences between a zebrafish and a human. But in fact, most of the signaling pathways or the way cells talk to each other or regulate their behaviour, they're highly conserved. Rita Fior hasn't used avatar zebrafish to guide a patient's treatment yet, but she's hoping to trial that soon. There are many strengths to the zebrafish PDX model, if it can be shown to work well. One advantage is that sacrificing fish embryos might be more palatable than using dozens of adult mice. Dominique Martin is an associate professor in bioethics and professionalism at Deakin University. People might feel that zebrafish are something that is less ethically significant because animals will have differing levels of cognitive capacity. They'll be more or less able to experience distress or harm and potentially also in terms of their ability to suffer pain if things are done to them. But even if we use zebrafish and even if we use embryos that haven't developed full awareness, patient-derived xenograft models still kill many animals for a single patient's benefit. I think on the, on the one hand, it sounds quite exciting to have the possibility of you know, testing out your, your personalised best therapy in a range of subjects. It sounds like really the ultimate in personalised medicine. But then of course, when you bear in mind that these are living, breathing animals and that it's not just a bunch of test tubes that we would be using to test out the best treatment for you, for a lot of people, that's gonna raise some concerns. And if someone's deciding whether to sacrifice dozens of animal avatars to optimise chemotherapy, they'd also have to keep in mind that a PDX trial wouldn't always help. In some cases, it might be a way to ensure that they are able to have or to find an effective treatment or to avoid taking treatments that might expose them to particular risks of harm. But it's not necessarily about making our existing treatments 100 times better. In other circumstances, it may be very little benefit compared with using whatever the the standard treatment currently is. Which is why other research teams are sticking with culturing tumour cells in a dish and searching for ways to improve this technology. Dietmar Huttmacher is a professor for regenerative medicine at the Queensland University of Technology. He says older lab bench methods, where a patient's tumour cells are cultured on a flat surface, won't predict what happens in the patient most of the time. So instead of dishes, he and others have begun creating artificial 3D structures that mimic part of the human body. Which means that the cancer cells are now in a 3D microenvironment, which we bioengineer by using the patients own cancer cells and with more sophisticated models we use not only the patient's cancer cells but also the host cells in which the cancer sits. These 3D models are still in their infancy but they're becoming increasingly lifelike. We use 3D printing technologies to really make very complex architectures which mimic some of the features you would find in the extracellular matrix of tissues, and we build a microenvironment very similar to what the cancer cells would see in a patient's body. 
And recently, Dietmar Hutmacher's team has begun using these structures to try testing chemotherapy drugs on tumour cells. We see effects in our models, which we also know from the literature, have been seen in patients. So we haven't done a one-to-one with a patient yet, but we did see the same response which was reported for patients in clinical trials. Related fields have been growing so-called organoids or spheroids created using a patient's tumour. Rita Fior says these models are now about as fast as a zebrafish PDX model. But it's still too early to say whether any of these artificial models, not using an animal avatar, will match the 80% predictive rate we've seen in some early PDX studies. In in vitro models, the complexity of the in vitro model is really provided by the researcher, right? You put all the different cocktails of drugs, cocktails of growth factors, and it's the researchers that control the growth of the tumour, right? When we put in the fish or in the mouse, it's really the tumour that gives the instructions. If we have alternative models that don't require the use of animals in ways that would be harmful to those animals, as an ethicist, I think, well, that's a a no-brainer. If that's something that we could do just as effectively, but that's not always something that we can predict with certainty, particularly in the early stages of research, what will be the most effective models. Dominique Martin says all of these models should continue to be tested and compared, and not just in terms of how effective they are, because all of these models are expensive and time-consuming. And it's not clear yet who would actually pay for an individual's army of avatars. We usually want as many people as possible to benefit in order to make the research worthwhile. If the treatments are only going to be available to uh, selected individuals or particularly privileged individuals, then we have to worry about um, whether we, we should be doing it in the first place. That was the second of our features about chimeras in medicine, both produced by Carl Smith. Make sure you go back and listen to last week's episode about organ transplants. Yeah, a great series. Now, we had a big response to a recent item about snake bites. That was on the health report on October 11th. We thought, what a better way to answer some of these questions than to put them to the expert herself, Christina Zvanek. Um, and um, Tregan, you're going to you know, channel Christina in answering those questions. But the first question comes from Melanie. I'm an emergency doctor at a large regional hospital in New South Wales where we deal with lots of snake bites. We have an eminent toxicologist on staff and I've also been involved in writing one of our snake bite protocols. I listened with interest to your recent interview with Dr Christina Zdanek regarding snake bite treatment. She mentioned that patients should insist that the bandage be taken off slowly over one hour. This is not standard practice in Australia. Does she have any evidence for this? I'd be really interested in this and possibly amending our protocols. Well, yes, I am channeling Christina because we put these questions to her and she wrote back via email. Of course, Christina is a toxinologist at the University of Queensland and she says the fact that slow bandage removal in hospital is not standard is one of the reasons why she wanted to make this piece because there's no paper about this topic because we can't study it in humans. We've got to rely on the principles of snakebite first aid and uh, and some clear snakebite cases where a rapid on- onset of symptoms developed after a quick removal of the bandage and um, she says number three, common sense. So she says keeping the bandage on does no permanent damage and removing the bandage over the course of an hour enables a gentle increase in symptoms and she does offer to um, to discuss for more uh, further training if, if anyone's interested. 
And Rachel um, writes, I've just been listening to your podcast on snake bites and want to ask about immobilisation. We do a lot of walking on the Bibelman track in WA. If there was to be a snake bite after the limb has been splintered and bandaged, would it be better to wait until the medics can come, which could be a while depending on the remoteness of the track, or try and carry the person back to the car? I know you said Aboriginal people would remain five days without moving, so I'm assuming the former. Yes, well, Christina says the short answer is yes, wait. The key with surviving a snake bite is to bandage and immobilise the limb, stay still and wait for help to arrive. If you put it on properly and you don't move a muscle, the bandage can buy you time, hours of time, um, six to 12 hours before antivenin may be needed if it's done correctly. So that was Christina's feedback, but we've got more questions, Norman, uh, from people emailing us at healthreport at abc.net.au. And one of them actually relates to last week's feature from Carl Smith about animals in medicine. Mary wanted to say something about the animal body part transplants feature that Carl gave us last week, saying this was a fascinating program. I trained as a nurse at St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne between 1963 and 1966. And Mary says she vividly remembers caring for a delightful man who had pig valves put into his heart. He was a butcher. There are a few of these surgeries, but I don't think any of them survived for very long. Thank you for your program. Well, in the early days, that might be right, but it's very common to get pig valves. And I think that Kevin Rudd had one. Put in. Really? Yeah. So I wonder whether maybe people weren't surviving in those days because you would only put them in someone who really didn't have much else in terms of hope. Yeah. We actually did a feature on this on the health report many years ago, and the history of heart surgery is quite fraught. You would never get away with it now ethically, but a lot of the early patients died. They were willing to have it, they knew the risks, but there were there were a lot of people who um, perished, to be blunt, um, in order for high-quality cardiac surgery to, to survive. In some mm. It seems to be a common story in medicine. Uh, Katie's got a question. Well, it sort of sounds like an ad for her husband's exercise physiology <laughs> business, but I'll, I'll read you the story and you can make up your own mind. She tore her medial meniscus uh, a couple of years ago, was told that she would need to have surgery on her knee, but her husband, who's an exercise physiologist, said, no, give rehab a go first, and she was very good at being very consistent with her exercise. She was healed up. She was back at CrossFit within six months. Uh, but their neighbour was told that she needed two knee replacements for her moderate osteoarthritis. Uh, she wasn't even in any pain. She was told that she needed um, surgery and her Katie's husband said that she was weak and overweight and that probably was contributing to the knee pain. Anyway, Katie's written in because of our episode about orthopaedic surgery, Norman. I just wonder if you've got any comments about this surgery being recommended? Well, look, what we said then was, if you take, say, torn meniscus, that's the cartilage, little wafers of cartilage that sit inside your knee joint. If you were to do an MRI, take 55-year-olds off the street and do, and they've actually done this, and do an MRI in one knee, regardless of whether you've got pain or not, just any 55-year-old off the street a very significant percentage will have a torn meniscus, a torn cartilage, and they wouldn't know it. Some will have pain, some won't. Uh, it's almost a normal part of ageing. I just think one has to be careful. And when we were talking to Ian Harris on the show, he was, in a previous episode actually, he was actually talking about how hip replacements are much more reliable in terms of getting benefit from them when you need it. Knee replacements have a bit of variability and you can go through some rehabilitation and just see whether you really need it or not before you decide to go ahead with it. And some people do drop off the list. So there is a bit of variability here. You've got some good questions that you sort of have as a rule of thumb, though, when people are being recommended to have 
any sort of surgery or intervention. That's right. So the questions are, first of all, what are the chances of benefit? What are the chances of harm? Um, what alternatives are there? And what happens if you do nothing? Yep. Yep. That's all that part of um, patient centred care and people being really informed in their decisions. And also, what are your expectations? Because if your expectations are that I want to run a marathon, um, there might be a different process that the surgeon would go through with you than if I just want to get rid of the pain, because sometimes getting rid of the pain is not not the result you get from a knee replacement. You you might get a reduction in pain. So there's a lot of expectations to be set, and there's not a surgeon who doesn't want you to get better as a result of the operation for it to be worth it. Absolutely. And one more question from David who says, he recently caught a news item uh, on another program, I think, citing a new study into the effectiveness of low-dose aspirin as an adjunct therapy to prevent um, CVA. So CVA is cerebral vascular accidents. So that's stroke around the CVD, which is cardiovascular disease. Yes. So he goes on to say some GPs prescribe aspirin, statins, antihypertensives as as the gold standard for heart health. And he was wondering about um, earlier reports that enteric coated aspirin was beneficial in limiting colon cancer. I think he's just sort of wondering what the role of aspirin is in medicine at the moment. Okay. So aspirin... If you've not had, say, a temporary stroke or a stroke itself, and it's got to be a clot-based stroke, then there's no benefit from aspirin. In other words, if you just take aspirin because I'd like one day to prevent myself having a stroke or indeed a heart attack, but you've got no evidence of heart disease, you haven't had angina, you've not got a stent, you haven't had a heart attack, and you haven't had a temporary stroke or even a, a significant stroke then there's no benefit from uh, aspirin in that situation. There's been a very large Australian and international trial done on that, which we had on the health report. Where aspirin does help, and it's almost an imperative, unless there's really strong indications that you shouldn't, is if you have got a sign of heart disease. Just to repeat myself, it's angina, it's a stent, you've had to have an intervention, or you've had a heart attack, or you've had a temporary stroke, or a stroke itself. So those are the situations where aspirin is incredibly useful at low dose, 75 or 100 milligrams a day. And those circumstances, yes, you do want to reduce cholesterol because what might seem like a normal cholesterol is probably too high for you. And, and if so you're talking about statins now. Yeah, that's right. So statins do go along with this to re- if you've already had a heart event. And sometimes you should, you'll need statins even though your cholesterol looks normal. And sometimes you will need anti-blood pressure medication, even though your blood pressure looks normal, to really reduce your risk very, very significantly. Now, aspirin for preventing colorectal cancer is a real phenomenon. And this is in people who, when you've had your colonoscopy, so you get your bowel cancer screening, you do your fecal occult blood test, you have a colonoscopy and they find a polyp. Um, or maybe more than one, you know, two or three polyps. Um, aspirin in that situation has been shown to prevent the recurrence of benign polyps. And if they can prevent the recurrence of benign polyps uh, are the precursor, well, some versions of the benign polyps are precursors to cancer. So indirectly, aspirin can prevent the course to colon cancer. But it's, it's again in a situation where you've been shown to have polyps rather than just blindly taking it. 
And speaking of blindly taking things, please do not blindly take the advice that you get on the health report. This is food for the conversation that you have with your doctor. Which is the equivalent of Tegan kicking me under the table. <laughs> well, that's it for the mailbag today. If you'd like to kick Norman under the table, send us an email at healthreport at abc.net.au or kick me. We love, we love all your kicks via email. And if you've got questions about COVID or vaccines, go to our Coronacast website and we will answer them on Coronacast. That's right. So many podcasts, so many answers. Too many. Let's go. See, See you next later. time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.